Take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John chapter 5. John chapter 5, if you're using these black Bibles that we have provided for you uh, scattered underneath the chairs throughout the sanctuary, you're going to find chapter 5 on page 836, John chapter 5. As we continue our Advent sermon series, Glimpses of Jesus, uh, where we are looking at select stories from John's gospel to teach us and remind us of the purpose of Christmas, because we're not meant to freeze frame that silent night in Bethlehem with shepherds and angels and animals and just freeze frame that and slap it on a Hallmark card. Uh, often with the result that these quaint images are taken for granted. Uh, they're, they're minimized and they're trivialized and they just end up becoming part of the background furniture of Christmas mixed in together with Frosty the Snowman and Mistletoe and Rudolph and all the rest. And as we, we take things that are true and weighty and cosmic and we blend them with things that are fictitious and sentimental and trite. And so one of my aims in this series is to help us to recalibrate our thinking about Christmas and recalibrate our thinking about Jesus by thinking through texts about Jesus that don't typically come to our minds during Christmas time, but, but they do emphasize and magnify who Jesus is and what He came to do, because I don't want all of the other trappings of Christmas to drown out Jesus. Presents and parties and holiday TV specials and family gatherings are but mere cheap trinkets compared to the infinite value of Jesus and having Him in your life. I'm not saying that those other things are necessarily wrong, I'm just saying that they're nothing compared to Jesus. And so if I'm really going to enjoy the Christmas season to the maximum, I'm not settling for second best, and and I don't want my church to settle for second best. We're going for broke. We're going for the best. We're going to be all in for Jesus and pursue enjoyment of Him as the number one priority now and the other 11 months of the year. So, with that preamble, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of God's holy and inspired Word. It's John chapter 5. We'll start at the beginning of the chapter, and we'll read on down through verse 16. God's Word says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he answered them, The man who healed me, the the man who said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? 
Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word, a word that sustains us, a word that feeds us, a word that is to be at the very center of our lives. And I pray that you would this morning bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word and speak to us, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. God helps those who helps themselves. Yes, many of you obviously have heard that saying before. Uh, God helps those who help themselves. According to one poll I saw, eight out of ten Americans believe that this statement is in the Bible. It's not. It's not. But it, it sounds good in a way, doesn't it? Uh, especially to us Americans, because Americans... Americans are all about independence. We're, we're all about picking ourselves up by our bootstraps and doing what's necessary. We've got a get her done kind of attitude. And if it ever came to the point that we did need help from God or from anyone else, we'd still want to be sure that we are playing a significant role in that help. Uh, the, the saying says, God helps those, yes, but He helps those who are doing something, who are helping themselves. The message of the Bible tells us something radically different. Uh, here in John 5, we learn something about Jesus, and we learn something about ourselves, and I think we learn why Christmas was necessary in the first place. Uh, the first thing I want us to see in this text this morning is Jesus' compassion for the helpless. Jesus' compassion for the helpless. Uh, verse 1 says, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So, you've got this place in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. It's packed with a multitude of people. They have all kinds of diseases, all kinds of physical ailments. You probably have hundreds of these people and their caregivers, and we can only imagine how sad a situation this is. Now, if you have a King James Version of the Bible, you will notice that there is a verse 4. If you have a modern translation, which most of you do, you'll notice that it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. Anybody see that? Okay. In the King James, verse 4 says that an angel periodically came and stirred the waters of this pool. And when that happened, the first one into the pool would be healed. If you have a modern Bible translation, ESV, NIV, whatever, um, it doesn't include verse 4. And the reason why is because the King James Version was translated in the year 1611. And the KJV translators at that time had access to only a few Greek manuscripts. Remember, we don't have the original autographs of John or any of the other Bible writers, for that matter. Uh, we, we've got copies. 
And in the Greek manuscript uh, that they had in 1611, verse 4 is there. But since 1611, we have uncovered many more ancient Greek manuscripts that are much older and much more reliable than the KJV translators had to work with. KJV is a great translation, so I'm not knocking it. If you have one, and if that's your preferred translation, that is, that is wonderful. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that they had access to limited uh, manuscripts and manuscripts that were not very old. And, and so those old, those, but the older manuscripts that we have discovered since then, they actually don't have verse four, which means that John actually didn't write anything about an angel stirring the waters. But instead, in all likelihood, a scribe later on inserted verse 4 about an angel stirring the pool, probably as a parenthetical statement to explain why people were flocking to the pool in the first place. But John actually doesn't give us any details about the pool. And so whether or not there's any truth to that legend of the angel is actually irrelevant The pool is incidental. The most significant thing is that Jesus now has come here, and John wants us to focus not on the pool, but on Jesus. And out of the multitudes of hundreds of sick and lame and diseased people, Jesus zeroes in on one man. It says in verse 6, Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Now, stop there for a moment and notice It's this man's helpless condition that gets Jesus' attention and leads Jesus to engage with this man. Jesus' knowledge of this man's long-term misery moves Jesus' heart, and we see here a glimpse of Jesus' deep compassion. He picks one of the worst cases in this multitude, a man paralyzed or near paralyzed on his mat. He's been at this pool day in, day out. Uh, He's he's in this sorry, helpless, hopeless condition. He's got absolutely nobody to help him. Maybe other people there have caregivers, but he's got no one. And perhaps he, he claws his way towards this pool the best he can, but every time somebody else beats him there. And who knows how many times that happened? Probably happened over and over and over again. Everything that he's banking his hopes in for life and healing never delivers, never comes to pass. And he just sits there day after day after day among the masses of other desperate and hopeless people sitting there in futility. So Jesus asked the man, do you want to get healed? Do do, do you want to get well? And a man's like, you're joking, right? Right? You're kidding. I can't get well. I'm in this hopeless condition. There's nothing I can do about it. Every time the water's stirred, I try to get there. No one's there to help me. People beat me there. I can't can't do anything about this. That's all Jesus needs to hear. Jesus says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And the man is immediately healed. Let me ask you something. What is it about this man that qualifies him for healing. This man gives zero evidence of faith. This man doesn't even know who Jesus is. In fact, some some take the the man's response to Jesus even to be a bit short. Uh, Don Carson, in his excellent commentary on John, notes that verse 7 reads less as an apt and subtle response to Jesus' question than as the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he's answering a stupid question. 
Uh, Additionally, a few verses down, it seems the man is more interested in saving his own skin and not getting into trouble with the religious authorities. He's more interested in that than having any loyalty or gratitude to Jesus. And, And indeed, once he discovers the identity of the one who healed him, he tattles on Jesus to the authorities. He doesn't seem significantly pious or virtuous at all. He is totally disqualified for healing as far as any worthiness to be healed is concerned. He meets one qualification, and that is that he has a massive need, and he knows it. And despite this man's lack of virtue, despite his questionable character, despite his lack of faith, Jesus in his compassion sets his love on this helpless man and restores him. This is illustrative of the heart of Jesus, and it's illustrative of the purpose of Christmas. God looked at planet Earth and saw a mass of humanity with massive need, and there was nothing in and of ourselves to qualify ourselves to be worthy of Jesus' attention. And the physical helplessness and powerlessness of that invalid at the pool is a picture of the spiritual condition of all of mankind. As as humanity's first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin and their hearts became corrupted and their attitude uh, towards God changed from love to hate, and and as children of Adam, we have all followed in in those footsteps. And so the Bible describes really all of mankind as spiritually weak, spiritually sick, and complete bondage to sin, just as that invalid was unable to walk and run, so we as sinners are unable to walk with God, to live for Him, and to love Him, and to obey Him. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the mind that is set on the flesh, the natural person, is hostile to God, uh, for he does not submit to God's law. Indeed, his mind cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, we are on the one hand like the invalid in that in our sin, we literally cannot get up and walk rightly with God. But worse, we don't even want to. Such is the degree of our natural hostility to God. King David in Psalm 51 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, David recognizes that he didn't start his life out morally neutral and then become corrupted by sin as he got older. But that from the very beginning, the seeds of moral corruption were already in his heart. The, the sinful nature, that sinful nature being transferred from his parents to him, and their parents got it from their parents going all the way back to Adam. There's a reason why with a child, you always have to teach him what is right, and you never have to teach her what is wrong. She does that quite naturally quite well on our own, because there is no such thing as a totally morally pure little boy or girl. There's there's one brother in this congregation, I I won't mention his name, but he he has before referred to to his uh, sweet little child as as my little bundle of depravity. That's theologically accurate. It is. Anyone who believes in the moral innocence of children either doesn't have them or doesn't pay close attention to the ones that they have and they're getting played. Now, I belabor all of this because I want to highlight the compassion of Jesus in His coming to earth 2,000 years ago. 
what I'm saying here about the condition of man is not meant to make us feel bad as much as it is to make us feel good about Jesus. As we think about why he came, Jesus did not see a world full of wonderful, virtuous, delightful, sweet people, and we're so irresistible, and we, he, just, we, he just had to be with us. It's not that at all. He looked, and he saw a people who were awful, corrupt, evil, hostile to him, and he came to them anyway. And so, if your Christmas revolves around Jesus, you're going to view the season a lot differently than if Christmas re- revolves around Santa Claus, because Jesus and Santa are totally opposite. I hope you know that. Uh, in the legend of Santa, who is Christmas for? Who benefits from Christmas? Who gets gifts? What does the song say? He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good, for goodness' sake. Santa helps those who help themselves. Christmas, in that scheme, is for good and deserving and worthy, morally self-sufficient people. And if it's good people that get blessed, then Deemer Webb is done for. I ain't getting nothing. Lump of coal in my stocking and hell in the future. That's me. I disqualified myself a long time ago. But if Jesus Christ is at the center of Christmas, everything is turned on its head because the message of the season biblically is that Christmas is not for good people. Christmas is for bad people. Christmas is for spiritually weak people, spiritual invalids, spiritually helpless people, people like you, people like me, people who have done wrong and have hated God and have hated others. And the Apostle John says in his other book, 1 John, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world. Not that we have loved God, because we didn't. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. It's one thing to have compassion for somebody who loves you, somebody who treats you right. That's easy. We've all done that. It's quite another thing to have love and compassion for somebody who hates you. And yet, that's exactly why God sent Jesus into the world, out of compassion for people who hated Him and Jesus here in John 5, he, he had compassion for that crotchety old invalid by healing his body. Even better, Jesus has compassion for crotchety old sinners like Deemer Webb and like you. And he came to save us, though we were unworthy and undeserving. So we see Jesus' compassion for the helpless. But also this passage teaches us something about the blindness of the self-sufficient. The blindness of the self-sufficient. Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and whenever you read that in the Gospels, the ominous music should just come to your mind whenever Jesus does anything on the Sabbath, because, because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are not behind, not too far behind when something like this happens. Verse 10 uh, it says, the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Verse 16 says, this is 
why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, the irony of all of this is that the religious leaders totally miss what's going on here. God established the Sabbath for the Jewish people at the very beginning of Israel's existence. And God roots the Sabbath in two things. First thing, the enjoyment and delight of God in His completed works, right? You go back to Genesis, those opening chapters of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them in six days. On the seventh day, He enters into rest, which is an enjoyment and, and, and a delight in all of the things He's done in the work of His hands, and he, and he invites His people to enter into that rest and enjoyment with Him. And the second thing that the Sabbath is grounded in is, is deliverance from Israel's bondage to the slavery and oppression that they suffered in Egypt. And so, God tells Israel, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But the problem is, and we get a hint of this in in John chapter 5, is that the Jewish leaders took this beautiful day, this Sabbath, and they, they turned a day of rest and refreshment and enjoyment of God into a crushing burden. They came up with a list of rules of all of the things you could do and could not do on the Sabbath, and it was a long weighty list of rules. For example, they said if a person walked more than a thousand yards from his home on the Sabbath, he broke the Sabbath. But they had a loophole. If you tied a rope at the end of your street, as far as a thousand yards away, then you could walk the additional thousand yards because the rope was considered to be an extension of your home. So you're not technically leaving your home. You're not, you're not working on the Sabbath. They said you could tie a knot on the Sabbath, but only if you did it with one hand. I'd like to see that. If you use two hands, that's work. I I think it's more work to do it with one hand, but whatever. They said no fingernails should be trimmed on the Sabbath. You couldn't kill fleas or flies on the Sabbath. Women, you'll love this one. Women were not allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath. Why? Because they might see a gray hair and pull it out, and that would be reaping, and that would have been considered work. That's a little sexist. I guess only the women are vain, and they can't stand having the gray hairs, and they've got to pull them out, and the men are okay with that. They had rules about swallowing and gargling. You could swallow vinegar on the Sabbath, but you couldn't gargle it. You couldn't wear false teeth on the Sabbath because if your teeth fell out, you'd have to bend over and pick them up. That would be work. It was permissible to eat an egg that had been laid on the Sabbath only if the chicken was killed the next day for having violated the Sabbath. And you could not carry burdens on the Sabbath. And so when the Jewish leaders saw a man that had been an invalid for 38 years, carrying his mats, what's, what's their response? Is it praise the Lord? This, this, this is amazing. You've been, you've been paralyzed for 38 years, and you're, and you're now walking around, and you're picking up your, your mat? Is, is that the response? No. It's, you're breaking the Sabbath. It, who, who told you that you could actually pick up your bed and walk around? It's crazy. Man-made religion is crazy. Makes you do crazy things. Here's the sad irony. The Sabbath 
was intended for the enjoyment of God and, and, and enjoying the works of His hand. The Sabbath was intended to be a celebration of deliverance. And here's a man who had been delivered from his infirmity, uh, 38 years of paralysis. Here's a healing that's been done through the mighty outstretched hand of God. And the Jewish leaders are more interested in the minutia of their religious laws than receiving this miracle with joy and receiving the one who made it happen. And the lesson here is that it is possible to be totally religious and totally miss out on God. You see, the problem with the religious leaders was that unlike the invalid, they saw themselves as totally self-sufficient. They did not regard themselves as helpless. They thought they were very good and they were very right with God because they followed all of the rules and they did all the right things and they checked off all of the right boxes. They did everything that they were supposed to do and they had the appearance of being very pious and very good on the outside. They were self-sufficient. They would have totally bought into the God helps those who help themselves philosophy. And if you feel spiritually self-sufficient and confident in your own righteousness, then you know what that means? It means you won't feel any need for a Savior. Do you remember the story in Matthew chapter 2 where uh, when King Herod had heard that the Christ, the King of the Jews, had been born, and he got very troubled and threatened by this because he wanted to protect his own little kingdom, and he had murderous intentions for the newborn king? And Herod wants to know where this little boy would be. And so he gathered all of the religious leaders, all of the Bible scholars, and he asked them where where the Christ is going to be born. And the religious leaders pull out their Bibles, and they find Micah, the prophet Micah, which says, "'You, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah,' are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem. He's coming from Bethlehem. The Bible says so. The the, the religious leaders immediately know where to go in their Bibles to answer this question for Herod, and they they know that the Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem, which is not far from Jerusalem. It's just considered, you can consider it like a suburb of Jerusalem. And one of the most striking things about Matthew chapter 2 is that these religious leaders then evidently close their Bibles and go home. They don't go to Bethlehem. They they don't go to Bethlehem. The wise men go to Bethlehem. They came hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. And they were Gentiles. Those self-sufficient Jewish religious leaders would have turned up their noses at the wise men, believing that they were morally inferior. They were confident in their own righteousness. They thought they were just fine. They weren't flocking to the Savior. They weren't flocking to the newborn king. They were self-sufficient. They didn't need anything. They had all the answers, and as a result, they totally missed out on Christmas. And they missed out on the blessing that Jesus came to give. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. He uses it as an illustration, declaring himself to be the one who gives spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. And Jesus had a very sobering exchange with the religious leaders who opposed them. And Jesus said this, For judgment 
I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him, the religious leaders, they heard these things, and they said to, said to him, are we also blind? They're very, they're very offended by this because, again, they're know-it-alls, and they're doing all the right things. And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. That is a terrifying verse when you think about it. Jesus is essentially saying that those who smugly reject Jesus' words and confidently boast in their own spiritual self-sufficiency remain in their state of guilt and condemnation before God. And we should realize with great sobriety and sadness that there are people like this in churches all over the country today. During Christmas time, maybe even here in this church, people who are very religious, They come to church, they sing songs, they give money, they pray, they try very, very hard to be very good, and yet they are totally and utterly blind. They're singing Christmas carols while missing Christmas. Because the point of their religion is not to know Jesus. It's not to completely depend on Him, putting Him at the center of all things. Rather, the point of their religion is to make them feel good about themselves. And then as a consequence, they they feel more self-sufficient. And then the other motivation is to receive praise from other people. That's exactly what Jesus identifies as the problem with these religious people in John chapter 5. If you go down to verse 44, Jesus says to them, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus nails it. He says they are more interested in the approval and favor of men than the approval and favor of God. This, in fact, was their motivation behind all of their religiosity. But external religion can't save you. Just merely external religion can actually send you to hell. That's why Jesus says, if you look down at verse 39, Jesus says to them, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Searching the Scriptures in and of itself doesn't give you life. Memorizing their Bibles didn't give them life. Praying and fasting and giving to the poor didn't give them life. Sabbath-keeping didn't give them life. Coming to church doesn't give you life. Being baptized doesn't give you life. Singing Christmas hymns doesn't give you life. Trying to be good doesn't give you life. Life is found in one thing and one thing alone, in knowing and loving and believing and receiving Jesus Christ. And if you refuse to come to Him, it doesn't matter what else you do. You won't have life. Everything in life is vain, apart from Jesus, as vain as being a paralyzed invalid hoping in vain to get into a pool of water to save you. And so if you're here this morning and you're trusting in yourself, and that, by the way, is basically the heart of American religion today, trusting in ourselves. I'm basically a good person. I'm a nice guy. I help out my neighbors. I pay my taxes. I provide for my family, and I give Jesus his props from time to time, so all is good between me and God. You may regard Jesus as a part of your life, but he's not the center of your life because you don't feel your need for him. And if that's you, I challenge you to honestly examine your heart this morning and reconsider your 
confident sense of self-sufficiency because it is a dead end and you will totally miss out on God as these religious leaders did. Next thing I want us to think about in this story is we see something of the purpose of God's grace, the purpose of God's grace. When this man was a helpless invalid for 38 years, what do you think people thought his biggest problem was? That he was a helpless invalid. It's not a trick question. And so, what do you think people thought his biggest need was? To be healed. The man's been laying there day after day. Can't get into the pool. People always beat him to the punch. He needs healing. His, his biggest problem is his physical infirmity, and his biggest need is healing. Jesus has a completely different perspective. Verse 14, Jesus comes to him and says, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. That's interesting. Jesus is telling this man, and he is telling you, and he is telling me, that the worst thing that can happen to us is not physical infirmity. It's not being an invalid for 38 years. It's not cancer or Crohn's disease or heart disease. The healing of this man's body was meant by Jesus to be seen as illustrative of the necessity for a greater healing from a much greater and deadlier ailment. Because the biggest sickness that man has is the sickness of sin that infects our souls. And Jesus is saying, he's saying to that man, if that is not dealt with, something far worse than the, than the destruction of the body will happen. Do you remember what Jesus said elsewhere in the Bible? He said, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. And, and I'm so glad Jesus said that because we are always so afraid of all of these other things in the world that can destroy us. And we, and we focus on that. I think it would be right application then to also say, do not fear cancer that can kill the body. Do not fear disease that can kill the body. Jesus says, instead, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That is exactly what Jesus is saying to this man right here in John chapter 5. And Jesus is saying to this ex-invalid that I have given you a measure of grace. I have shown you kindness. I have healed you. Now use your health not as an opportunity to indulge in further sin, but use it to the glory of God. Now if you're here this morning as an unbeliever, I'm glad you've come. And I want to take this opportunity to remind you that God has been incredibly kind to you. He's been incredibly gracious to you. Maybe He hasn't healed you of your physical infirmity, but He has been lavishing grace upon you day after day after day. The next breath you take is due to God's grace. The home that you live in is a gracious gift from God. The last meal you enjoyed was God's grace. Every minute you spend not in hell is God's grace. And God has a purpose in His kindness to you. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His kindness is meant to drive you to a point where your gratitude for the mercies of God leads you to trust God to the point where you reject sin, where you stop doing things your way with the illusion of self-sufficiency, and you embrace Him wholeheartedly and go God's way in dependence on Him. Jesus is saying to this ex-invalid, don't regard me as a mere add-on to your life. 
something that just came around to help make your life a little better. Instead, regard me as your life, not just a part of your life, but as your life. You know, many people don't overtly reject God. Many people don't overtly reject Jesus. He simply is not the most important thing in their lives. Many people in America believe in Jesus, but they see Jesus as just one of many things to help them to make their lives more comfortable. And they carry Jesus around like a little idol in their pocket, and they only bring him out when they need something. Heal this disease, fix my marriage, help me get a raise at work, get me out of this difficult situation. I see a lot of people, I see this a lot where, where, where people going through really rough times all of a sudden get really serious about church. And they want to meet with a pastor, and they want to get counseling and all those sorts of things. And by the way, if you want counseling and you want to meet with me, I am more than happy to meet with you and talk to you about Jesus. But, but, but many times this happens, and, and it seems like they want to get serious about these spiritual matters, and yet many times, guess what happens when they get relief? when they get what they want, when the situation is not as bad anymore. They ditch church, they stop reading their Bibles, and they essentially shove Jesus back into their pockets. Well, I don't need Him anymore. Thanks for getting me out of a jam. I'll talk to you later when I need something else. Now, no one actually says that. That's exactly how people treat Jesus, because we are a self-sufficient people. And we have our own ideas about how we should live and, and, and what we should do. And, and, and so then consequently, anything in this book is at best merely suggestions. And we take what we like and we reject what we don't like. And Jesus' message for this man that he has just healed is, don't treat me that way. I haven't healed you, I haven't given you this grace, this kindness, so that you can waste it through continuing to live in sin apart from me. It won't work, because only Jesus is the source of eternal life, and if you turn from Him to seek life elsewhere, the, conse the consequences inevitably will be death. Because while on the one hand, Paul says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, Paul says right after that, in the next verse, uh, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath with God's righteous when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So do not presume upon the kindness and patience of God. Repent from your sins and turn to God, lest something worse happen to you. 38 years of infirmity is horrible. 38 trillion years in hell is much worse. And that will be the only, only the beginning of an eternity of the suffering that comes with separation from a relationship with God. That's the bad news. But for anyone who hears the bad news and finds themselves in despair and realizes their hopeless condition, Jesus offers glorious news. Look down further in John chapter 5. Look down to verse 24. And Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So the way to avoid judgment, the way to avoid the something worse that Jesus was warning that invalid about is by hearing Jesus' word. You need to hear that word and believe. 
Being religious cannot save you. Trying to be good cannot save you. Working hard cannot save you. But believing and receiving and trusting in Jesus' word right now can. And you can pass from spiritual death to spiritual life, even as you sit here in your chair this morning. That's true of anyone. It's true of people who, like the man in John 5, are unworthy, undeserving, sinful, and rebellious. Uh, It's true of people like him who weren't even looking for Jesus. It is interesting. This guy wasn't even looking. Jesus wasn't even on his radar. Jesus came after him, which says something about just the initiative of Jesus. He comes after people. He's coming after some of you. And I hope he catches you soon. Christmas isn't for good people. It's for people like you. And God has, in his compassion and mercy, chosen to set his love on people like us, offering us the gift of eternal life for all who would but receive it. Because Christ came and Christ died, he paid the penalty for sin, suffering and dying on the cross, enduring God's wrath as a substitute for sinners. Because Christianity isn't a religion of self-sufficiency. It's not a religion that says, you can do it. It's a religion that says, you can't, you didn't, and you won't. But Christ did. That's what Christianity says. And when you put your trust in Jesus, you are declaring that you are unworthy of heaven, that you deserve hell, but you are declaring your desire for Jesus' payment to count as your payment, so you, are, so you owe God nothing anymore in regards to your sins, because he paid it all. And you also are by faith receiving the perfect righteousness of Jesus so that legally in God's courtroom, he can declare you as innocent and not guilty. And you can experience that all through faith in Jesus. But that doesn't answer everything. Yes, Jesus says, believe his word, but he also said, stop sinning. Let something worse happen to you. So repentance, turning from sin, and faith, believing, uh, go hand in hand. And the sinner in despair then might think, well, that's hopeless. I can't do that. You, you don't know how bad I actually am. Uh, you don't know how deep into sin I actually am. I've been enslaved to sin for years, and now you're telling me to stop sinning? I, I'm perpetually angry, or I'm addicted to alcohol, or I'm enslaved by sexual sin. Or I'm hopelessly materialistic and greedy, or I'm a constant liar, or I'm arrogantly self-righteous. This has been my life. I can't change this. How can you say, Jesus, stop sinning? The same way Jesus can say to an invalid cripple for 38 years, get up, take up your bed, and walk. It's not about your ability. It's about the power of Jesus' word. That word that regenerated the invalid's bones and tissue and muscles down to the molecular level, that same word, that same power invades the sinful hearts of all who realize their complete and utter spiritual helplessness and and they turn to Him and hope in Him. Jesus says in verse 20, we're still in chapter 5, Jesus says in verse 20 that the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And then look down at what he says in verse 25. 
an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Think about that. Just as at the sound of the voice of Jesus, the invalid was able to pick up his mat and walk, so the dead will hear the voice of Christ and live. And when? When will that happen? Jesus says the hour is now here. Jesus is not talking about the resurrection of the body exclusively. He says the hour is now here. That there is a ministry of Jesus speaking now. And dead people are coming alive now. He's talking about spiritually dead and helpless people. He's talking about spiritual invalids receiving life. In other words, he's saying, you you think healing this invalid is an impressive display of power? You've seen nothing yet. That's just the tip of the iceberg. One day I'm going to raise corpses from the ground, but guess what? It gets even better because the hour is now here that I will take spiritual corpses and do the greatest work of all, which is not transforming somebody's body, but transforming someone's hearts. And all who turn to Jesus can experience this transformative power. This this isn't, isn't something that mere religion can do. Now, Jesus isn't about making a new religion. He's about making new people. The Bible elsewhere describes what God does as spiritual heart surgery, where God takes the dead, cold, stony heart of a person who hates God and is enslaved to sin, and He miraculously, through the power of His Word, transforms that heart into a heart of flesh that is alive and warm and beating and on fire for God, loving God, seeking to live for God. And as the regenerative, life-giving power of God flows into the believer, he begins to experience a change of affections and passions and desires, where once you were a callous rebel against God and you ran from God, now you want to run to God, you want to love Him, you want to please Him as you move into a deeper and deeper relationship with God. That's what eternal life is. It doesn't mean you're perfect. This experience is a process that begins when the sinner calls out to Jesus for salvation, but it's not complete until heaven. Then perfection comes, but the believer is imperfect for now and still sometimes falls into sin. But unlike the spiritual impotence of the lost unbeliever, the believer is now able to wage war against that sin, and the believer now has the resources to experience increasing victory over it. The believer can rise and walk with God. And so if you're here this morning as an unbeliever, the question I have for you is the question that Jesus asked the invalid, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? You're in a helpless condition. You're bound in your sin. You're unable to help yourself, and and deep down you know it. If you want to get well, if you want to be free of your spiritual infirmity, there's absolutely nothing that you can do to be healed of it outside of simple faith and trust in Christ. If you're here today as a believer, it's critically important for you to remember why you are sitting here this morning pulsating with spiritual life, because we so often forget and take for granted what actually happened to us when we got saved. Uh, we, we forget it. Uh, we, we forget the miracle that Christ worked in our lives and, and His amazing love and His amazing compassion for us. So let us not forget that Jesus 
sitting from his heavenly throne, saw a mass of humanity spiritually sick and diseased and, and spiritually paralyzed and dead, a people hating and despising him and wanting nothing to do with him, a people who were fleeing down a path away from him as fast as they could, and at the end of the road was hell, and you were part of that sorry group. And you would think that if God were to visit this world, it would be to wipe us out in judgment. But instead, God was deeply moved with compassion because of our pitiful condition, and He sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it, to save you. He saw you, He fixed His eye on you, and He graciously chose to set His love on you. And so Jesus came to Bethlehem, born of a virgin, 2,000 years ago on a rescue mission to seek and save that which was lost because we were powerless and helpless, and could not save ourselves. Indeed, this is the final scripture I'll leave you with in Romans 5. Paul says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still hating God, while we were still shaking our fist at God, spitting in God's face, while we were doing all of those things, Christ, Christ died for us. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless, and God gets maximum glory for that. Let that truth be branded into your heart and soul this holiday season. Let it drive you to deeper and more thankful and more passionate and more zealous worship and adoration for Christ than ever before. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for your compassion and your mercy. We, we can't even relate to it because we don't have compassion and mercy, not like that. When people hate us, when people do us wrong, we are done with them, and we cut them off. Thank God you didn't cut us off. Thank you that you cut your son off, and he died and received what we deserved so that we might be saved and we might be called children of God. Father, if there's anyone here that has come to this place this morning not believing, Father, I pray that you would work through the power of your word to take a dead, cold, stony heart and do something beautiful with it, change it into a heart of flesh, beating and alive for you. Father, as we continue our worship now, I pray that you would help us to love and treasure and adore your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.